What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, last week, we had the 10-year yield range from 76 basis points all the way up to 87 basis points. Now, 11 basis points may not be a massive move in so-called normal times, but it is these days. So let's bring in Jim Bianco of Bianco Research to tell us what kind of volatility we're seeing and what does it get you, Jim? Hey, thanks for having me. Um, The bond market's volatility normally is not a big deal. But given, you know, 11 basis points in a week is not the craziest thing you would have seen. But given the environment we're in, it is a massively mm-hmm. large move. And it came on the back of a stock market that sold off over 5%. That was probably the most surprising part about it, was there was no risk-off rally in the bond market last week. And that's what's got everybody shaking their head right now. So, Jim, you know, we have the election coming up tomorrow. How are you kind of... I'm not going to say playing it, but how are you forecasting how this market's going to react going forward? What's kind of your base case, what we're going to see tomorrow and, and the days ahead and how that might impact uh, the credit markets? I have a little different base case than most. Um, if, you, if you look at the world of the polls, they're giving Trump, I'll go with the incumbent point of view, about a 5 to 10% chance of winning. If you look at the betting markets, they're giving him a 41% chance of winning. The betting markets seem to align with the financial markets. I think the financial markets think that Biden is leading, but it's very, very close, where the polls are saying it's going to be a very lopsided race. If the polls turn out to be right, and it is as lopsided as they say it is, I think there's going to be a lot of discounting in the market tomorrow or Wednesday into Thursday as they start to price in more of a Biden victory than they have right now. And I think ultimately how the markets price that in, it's going to come down to how the Senate goes. The Senate, I think, is going to probably be the the real story as we go forward from here, because that's kind of touch and go as to which way it can go. Wall Street wants a blue wave because it wants fiscal stimulus. Um, And I think if it gets that blue wave, there's probably going to be a rally based on the knee-jerk reaction. But I don't think that that blue wave is as completely priced in as a lot of people think right now. Well, there's also a very real possibility of the presidency turning over, but not the Senate. In that situation, Jim, what, what are we looking at in terms of policy for the next four years? Well, for the next four years, history says that that should be bullish because Wall Street has always liked gridlock of any kind. That seems to be the best scenario for it over the next several years. Over the short term, it won't like gridlock because what it wants right now is it wants a fiscal deal. And if we, get, if we were to get the Senate to be held by the Republicans, uh, then what we would wind up having happen is um, the lessing of less likelihood of a fiscal deal at that point. So, Jim, I mean, 
if you look at the 10 year, it's been trading after, after that volatility in March, 10 years kind of been in this range of 60 to 80 basis points. Is there a scenario in, in your analysis where we get the 10 year to, you know, 1%, one and a quarter percent, something like that in a reasonable time frame? Sure. And I think there's a likely scenario with that. And that is the return of inflation. With all of the pump priming that we've done with the fiscal stimulus and the monetary stimulus and the contraction of the economy, meaning we're making less stuff, less gross domestic product, that is a prescription for higher prices, otherwise known as inflation. If the market thinks that inflation is coming back and coming back in a big way, yeah, you'll see investors run away from the bond market and you could see higher yields. In fact, I think that might be one of the things that's been bothering the market the last couple of weeks, even though the stock market has stumbled and the, and the bond market's been unable to rally on that, is I think that there is this fear of inflation. If you add to that one other and uh, and that is a vaccine. If you keep sending people money and you keep pumping the priming the pump, and then you get a vaccine and tell everybody, okay, now we can go back to normal, that really underscores the idea that you could get a return of inflation. So I do see that as a plausible scenario for much higher yields as we move into 2021. So interestingly, Jim, the person we maybe should be watching then is Jerome Powell, because he has basically, and his Federal Reserve has basically promised ultra-loose monetary policy for years to come. But in the scenario you just described, the bond market would be telling the Fed to actually raise rates, no? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, We all have been looking at Paul and thinking that he's been the guy that saved the markets, and that's largely been the case for 2020, and he's promised not to raise rates for years with an S on the end of it to come. The only thing that changes that is the market itself. If it decides that it wants a change of policy. It did so in the fourth quarter of 2018 when the Fed was reducing the balance sheet and it said stop, sold off the stock market really hard until Powell changed his mind and said he'd be patient and flexible. If we get inflation, we could see something like that in 2021 where the market does an about-face and it demands a change of policy and eventually the Fed will coerce and, and give it to it. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, always appreciate your thoughts and opinions. Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research. He's also a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion joining us, and he's based uh, in Chicago. Well, certainly a better start to this week than we saw in trading last week here as we go into the election. Let's see if this has some legs to it. We can do that with Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes. He joins us. Phil, thanks so much for joining us here. What do you make of last week's trading? Again, one of the rougher weeks uh, this market has seen going into an election. Well, you had a bunch of things that were going on. I guess there was a realization that we were not going to get this phase four stimulus package that Congress has been negotiating on for months now. Uh, We've got this third wave of infections that that have spiked here as we sent our kids back to school in, you know, late August, early September. And and then, um, you know, investors were starting to think, well, maybe we could get this this blue wave in the election this week, which means taxes and regulations are going higher. So for all those reasons, you know, you're probably down, you know, let's call it 10%, excuse 
excuse me, from where the market peaked out on September 2nd to where we, you know, sort of bottomed out uh, on Friday. Uh, and we're getting a little bit of a snapback today. That's good. You know, we, we've gotten some better data. Um, but uh, the big enchilada, of course, is going to be the election tomorrow and, and whether it turns out to be contested or not. So, Phil, if you're buying the market today, and many people are with the S&P up 1.8%, what is your reasoning? Um, I'm not quite sure, um, because we've got a two-thirds chance of a contested election tomorrow. And the last time we had a contested election was Bush-Gore in 2000 with the hanging chads in Florida. And stocks were down about 13%. Uh, from uh, from election day into the middle of December, when uh, the Supreme Court finally came in and resolved the issue, um, so certainly the market's oversold here near term. But you've got to respect the fact that this is an extraordinarily contentious election. There's any number of things that can happen. Some of them not particularly good in terms of the contested nature of the election. And at this point. The most prudent thing to do, in our opinion, is to just sort of stand back, um, see how it plays out, and then figure out what to do from an investment standpoint. So what's the source of that, that two-thirds number? That's an interesting number, and kind of how does that – how do you define a contested election? Well, the fact that we're not going to know who won the election tomorrow night. Okay. And the, the logic behind that very simply is this. Uh, we had 33 million mail-in ballots – out of 139 million total ballots cast in the 2016 election. This cycle is going to be very different because of the coronavirus. People are scared to death of showing up at their their polling place and getting infected. So the experts are telling us that instead of 33 million mail-in ballots this cycle, we're going to double that. We're going to be at 70 or 80 million mail-in ballots out of 150 or 160 total million ballots cast. Literally half of the ballots could be mail-in. As a result, a lot of the states are, are by law, are, are not going to be starting to count those ballots until you know tomorrow. We're not going to have those results tomorrow night. Um, and and you've, got, you've got a number of key swing states that, that based upon the polling data, are going to be really close. We may not know the results for a couple of weeks. Um, and so uh, given that uncertainty, and equity markets hate uncertainty, that, that suggests we could drift down to, you know, let's call it the, the 200-day moving average, you know, which is another couple hundred points below where we are right now. Where else is there a possible trade that might pay off a hedging trade or some kind of a a trade that works in either instance and even if there is a a contestation? Well, what we did back in, I guess, the middle of August, anticipating all of this, because we spent a lot of time studying you know, the intersection between politics and, and Washington, is we thought that technology stocks had simply run too far too fast. And, and here we are, you know, at the beginning of September, the equity market was sitting just at about the 3,600 level. Our full year forecast was 3,500. So, so and, and most of that rally is being driven by tech. So we took some profits in that area, domestic large cap growth, technology, and, and rotated those dollars into uh, value stocks, small cap stocks, and international stocks. Uh, we think now that the economy is back in a growth mode, that they'll start to be generating uh, positive revenues and earnings again. Uh, the valuation gap between growth stocks and these other categories was massive, 
and and we felt that 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 was going to close over time. So we're going into this, we decided to lock in some profits, play defense a little bit, and then see how how this election plays out. Hey, Phil, just real quickly, 20, 30 seconds here. What's a blue wave mean for you? Well, it would mean that that, uh, the Democrats would have a legislative mandate. We're probably looking at significantly higher uh, corporate and individual tax rates and, and regulations. That means that economic growth, corporate earnings growth, stock prices are going to come down. Uh, so as we look at the longer-term cycle, uh, that would be less, uh, less beneficial, less favorable for equity investors. Well, Phil, we shall see. Thank you so much, as always, for giving us all of your ideas and your analysis. That is Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes. It's going to be so interesting to speak to some of our guests post-election and see what actually happened. And Paul, I'm also looking at CMDS today, the commodity pricing, and it seems like we're seeing some kind of a propane bid, apparently, in the market, (laughs) right? Exactly. Exactly. You know, we were out to dinner over the weekend, eating outside. And boy, there were this propane heating all over the place and they were all being used and I could just see the demand for propane going through the roof here over the next several weeks. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Well, it is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined today by Jonathan Bernstein. He's a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering politics and policy. He's out with a fascinating column today entitled, Tomorrow Won't Be a Normal Election Day. That sounds like an understatement to me. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us here. I guess I want to start with, will this election, in your opinion, be contested by President Trump? And to what extent do you think? Well, of course, first of all, he could win. I mean, that is possible. Um, so put that aside about, I don't know, five, 10% chance that he'll actually just flat out win. If he doesn't win, here's what we know. We know he'll claim that there's voter fraud without evidence, without anything, because we know he'll do that because he did that four years ago, even though he won, he claimed that there was fraud against him. So pretty confident that he'll claim all kinds of fraud. He's been saying without any evidence and against all the evidence that mail-in absentee voting is fraudulent. It isn't. Um, He's been saying that uh, the vote should stop, the counting should stop midnight or uh, on election day, which has never been the case before. That's not how the system works. So yeah, I mean, at the very least, he's going to complain that he was he that it was stolen from him. What he will do in addition to that, he's claiming that he's going to send out he, we know he he is sending out a team of lawyers to put lawsuits against the count everywhere can whether that will actually mount amount to anything that's still to come Jonathan what are states that you're looking at in terms of a difficult process if the count is very close or if something needs to be contested well We know that um, Pennsylvania in particular, which is the most likely tipping point state, that is the one that puts one of the candidates or the other over the top, uh, is expecting to have a slow count. 
Um, they're doing that because Republican legislature in the state mandated a slow count. They said you can't start um, opening the envelopes and even checking to see if they're legitimate votes until Election Day morning. In many states, in Arizona and California, that's been going on for days already. Um, in fact, the votes are being counted in a lot of states. And so as soon as the polls close, Florida, for example, of all of the count of the early vote. Um, that'll happen in Texas also. But in Pennsylvania, it's going to go slow. They say they've got enough counters that they're going to go 24-7 until the, the counting is done. Jonathan, as you talk to folks in the political world, if this is a close election, is there a sense of how long this could drag on? I guess the only real experience we have is 2000 when it went weeks. Well, the count itself could take um, one or two weeks in the slowest states. Um, that's typical in California. It, you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan are the states we're really looking at that might affect the outcome of the presidential election that are expected to be slow. Then lawsuits could take weeks the way that they did in uh, 2000. There could be recounts. Um, and, you know, we'll see how that goes. There are constitutional and um, statutory limits as to when the electors are supposed to be appointed and then when Congress is supposed to open the electoral votes and count them and all that. And that happens in December and January uh, to come. So those are sort of, you know, guideposts that we have that we can go by. Jonathan, voter fraud is extremely rare. We know that, we've been told that, and yet it's sometimes hard to believe when you see some reports of, of something that might be fraud. Explain to us why it is rare, what, what, what's in place to make sure that fraud can't happen very easily. Well, for example, on you know mail-in ballots, they have the signature match, and they have um, a lot of, most states have it co- you know a code so that they know that the ballot that came back is the same one that was sent and that it was properly sent. Um, and again, you know, uh, some states have been doing um, vote by mail exclusively, uh, Washington, Oregon, Utah, um, for several cycles now, and they haven't had any problem with it. So, you know, and including Republican states. So, you know, one thing that happens is young voters tend to vote last. And so, because young voters these days are more likely to vote Democratic, as those votes get counted, the election night totals will start shifting over the next several days to Democrats. And, you know, Republicans say, ah, there's something wrong with that. But that happens in Republican-run states like Utah and Arizona, which have a lot of absentee voting. Uh, The same thing happens. So obviously, Republicans are not cheating in favor of Democrats in those states. It's just how the system works. Jonathan, is it fair to assume, I mean, if it's a close election, I guess the default is it will be contested. What's the scenario where, you know, the the whole contestability of it, it really kind of goes away, that in fact, we will know something late tomorrow night? Well, it could get contested, even though we know something. You know, Trump is going to say that he was ripped off no matter what. Um, So, but it is certainly possible, you know, Florida counts its ballots very quickly. They could have a result very quickly tomorrow night. And if Joe Biden wins in Florida, 
there's no realistic chance that Trump's going to win the Electoral College after that. So, And there's other states that also have quick counts. And if Biden wins, you know, right now, Biden looks like he's winning by about eight and a half points nationally. If it turns out that that's the case, he almost certainly is going to win the Electoral College by a comfortable margin. And we'll basically know that. At that point, there's a question of, well, to what extent does Trump try to throw out legitimate ballots, which they're trying to do, for example, in Texas right now, some Republicans are. Um, and so it could be contested without having a really good chance of succeeding. Jonathan, you do say in your column that President Trump's bark is often worse than his bite. How does that play out here? Because, you know, if he barks here, there's a great chance it goes to the Supreme Court. Well, it, it all depends on what exactly he does and what happens. So that, you know, for example, if Florida comes in quickly for Biden, if Biden wins by, you know, several states, Trump may continue to say it's fraud. It shouldn't ever, you know, he shouldn't have been allowed to run in the first place and all that. He will probably say that up to up to Inauguration Day and pass that. Um, but he may not actually be doing much about it. And it's possible the courts will look at some of these absurd lawsuits um, saying that legitimate votes just shouldn't count just because Trump doesn't like them to be counted. And they may toss them out. And it may not go to the Supreme Court. It may not go anywhere at all. You know, it could turn out that it goes to the courts and the courts make um, new rules as they go along, as they did in the Wisconsin case last week or Minnesota case last week. Um, so we'll see you know, what will happen. But the other part of this mm -hmm. is we're going to hear a lot of rumors about fraud and all that on Election Day. Try not to get ahead of ourselves. Yes. Jonathan, thank you. Great reminder in today's column. Tomorrow won't be a normal election day. Jonathan Bernstein of Bloomberg Opinion. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Clearly, there's a lot on the line for this election. Everybody, it seems like, has a very, very keen interest on the outcome of this election. That includes environmentalists as well. To get the latest on that, we welcome uh, our next guest, Dr. Ashat Rathi, climate and energy reporter for Bloomberg Green, based in London. Um, Akshat, thanks so much for joining us here. It seems, I guess, cut and dry that if you're an environmentalist, if you're thinking about the environment, you're pulling really hard for not just former Vice President Joe Biden, but a blue wave in the Senate. Is that as clear as it can be? Is that as easy to analyze as it can be? Or are there differences there? I think you nailed it. Uh, that is really the clearest distinction in this election. And I don't think it has ever been as clear as you've laid it out. Give us a little more detail on that. So what we know is that Joe Biden has put forth with what is the most ambitious climate plan that any U.S. presidential candidate has put forth so far. Uh, among the details are that he's going to spend about a, about $2 trillion uh, trying to reduce emissions 
first step will be to get carbon-free electricity by 2035 across the United States, uh, build out a charging network for electric cars, and to retrofit homes with better insulation so that their energy use falls and their emissions decline. On Trump's side, what we've known from the past four years is that much of the work that has gone on through the administration is to roll back regulations uh, for fossil fuel industries and open up new areas uh, around the country for extraction of fossil fuels. Uh, Among the few things that it has done to try and reduce emissions um, is to try and create this plan to plant a trillion trees, uh, or at least join a global plan of planting uh, trees, and to support a technology called carbon capture, where you capture emissions from a power plant and then bury them deep underground. Uh, But the distinction is very, very clear. The science says we need to cut emissions really quickly, and Joe Biden's plan gets us some way towards that. Uh, Under a Trump administration, we get away from that task. So, Akshay, what's the most immediate and most impactful thing you would expect a Biden administration to do? Biden has promised that on his first day in office, he will rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. That's something that uh, Trump has pulled out of. Uh, He had his intention made clear in 2017, and actually officially uh, the U.S. will be out of that uh, agreement on November 4th, which is a day after the election. So if Biden is elected first day back sometime in January, uh, the U.S. is back into the Paris Climate Agreement. And that has a number of ramifications because U.S. as a leader in global politics carries a lot of weight. Uh, when it comes to deciding which direction different countries should go in. So a very recent example from my reporting has been that Japan, for instance, has a signal that is going to target net zero emissions by 2050. That's a uh, line that the prime minister has put forth right now, but it has to go through their legislative system before it becomes law. If Biden is elected, Japan has all the reasons to support it. If Trump is elected, the lawmakers might dither a little bit. And that's the kind of impact that will play out across many, many countries. Will it be just that easy that you just call up a bunch of countries and and decide? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, In case of the Paris Climate Agreement, actually, it is easy because uh, it is a voluntary agreement that countries have come together and have agreed upon trying to uh, reduce emissions. Of course, It'll be much harder to actually cut emissions when it comes to the United States itself. So a goal to reach carbon-free electricity by 2035 is something that none of the countries in the world have yet committed to. So what Biden will have to do to reach that is going to be really, really hard. Academics say you can get up to 90 percent, but the last 10 percent is going to be very hard. Equally, He's going to have to deal with the tensions that uh, the U.S. has had to deal with in the past, which is if you're going to move away from the fossil fuel industry or move away from fossil fuels, how are you going to help the people in those industries transition away? It's a really hard question that many countries outside Germany, China, Australia are starting to struggle with, uh, but the U.S. hasn't done as much, and that will be on Biden if he gets elected. Akshay, just real quick, 20 seconds. How, what's been the cost of the four years of the Trump presidency in terms of the environment? How bad has it been? Well, luckily, renewable energy has been cheap. And so um, 
Trump hasn't been able to reverse that trend. But what we know is that for the first time, emissions have gone back up in the U.S. under a Trump presidency. That is sort of adding a year or two worth of damage uh, in the long term, uh, in the long, long scheme of terms. Yeah. Akshat, thanks so much. We really appreciate getting your thoughts and insights. Dr. Akshat Rathi, he is a climate and energy reporter for Bloomberg Green based in London, uh, giving the thoughts that, uh, you know, on day one, if uh, President Biden uh, were to win the presidency the day one of his presidency, he would uh, try. He would uh, look to get back into the Paris uh, Agreement as it relates to global environmental uh, curbs. In, 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 in you know, so we'll have to see how that plays out. But that's clearly on his focus. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.